So this morning, we'll look at what God's Word says about how you would be involved in an eternal difference, investing in women and children. Like other secular events, the church has latched on to this American idea called Mother's Day and made its own celebration, and for good reason. Motherhood is a noble duty. It's a heavenly call from God to honor Him, not only in procreation, but in raising children who will bless their mothers and their fathers and ultimately bless the Lord with lives that honor Him and are useful for drawing others unto Him. But if you're not a mother, or if you are estranged from your children, if you've lost children to a tragic early death, or if for whatever reason the whole idea of this annual recognition may be painful to you, the church should be a source of encouragement to you regardless of your circumstances. And so I would hope that you and I as a local church could commit together to do that, to never ever be an undue, unreasonable source of discouragement to any woman or man as a result of our own insensitivity. So I want to start by asking you to turn with me to the book of James, James 1. Beginning with verse 19, James helps us to understand what his purpose is, and then he gets really, really practical. And so I want to start by asking you to see this relationship, to see this connection. The impetus in James' mind and his heart is to draw the reader's mind to the sufficiency of the Word of God. And then he gets extremely practical. When we think of James, maybe we even think of it as being one of, if not the most practical book in the Bible. But start with me. You read along silently as I read aloud, James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, I want to ask you to stop there for just a minute because I've got a comment here. He's talking about an angry response to the truth of God's word. This is extremely common in the false convert. He hears the truth of the Word of God, and he gets angry, and he starts twisting the Word of God, and he starts trying to discredit the messenger. So he says, receive it with meekness. You don't have any problem at all denoting the obvious relationship in the person's life who adamantly, really angrily rejects the Word of God. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He's not meek. He's not interested in humility. He's interested in his own self-preservation and his own self-exaltation. Then verse 22, and this is extremely familiar to you, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So again, a very practical call in light of the command to subject yourself to the word of God that when implanted in your soul saves the soul. Why does the false convert continue in his hard-hearted disinterest in the Word of God? It's because he thinks very highly of himself. He has a very low view of God's Word, and he uses it to hammer other people with it, rather than to be humbled by it. 
Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's getting real practical, isn't he? Somebody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, be on the lookout for that person. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Some affinity for the word of God, but they look in the mirror. They might begin to wrestle just momentarily with the truth of their bankrupt condition and they walk away and they forget about it. Then they begin again to pad themselves with self-exaltation, self-esteem, and remind themselves of their conduct, their works, their accomplishments, rather than considering the truth of their souls. They immediately walk away. It's that easy for them. It's that easy. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, right? The one who really investigates, the one who really wants to learn. He looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's not at all surprising that he would say the person who is committed to the word of God keeps himself from the stain of the world. And this is the more obvious reality. The person who pretends to have some affinity for the Word of God and is yet completely stained by the world is a person who is easy to identify as the false convert. But you might not be thinking that the person who's truly committed to the Word of God is legitimately and genuinely committed to orphans and widows. That might not enter your mind. And so James jumps to the chase. The true church of Jesus Christ is committed to orphans and widows. This is why from the beginning this has been a passionate interest in our hearts to assist those who are experiencing the practical marital condition that looks like being a widow. You might not think of certain children as being orphans when they actually are. They've been orphaned by one parent or both. For children who in essence have been orphaned because their fathers have jumped ship. They've chosen the way of the world rather than the family. It's just unconscionable, and yet it's very common. It's not at all unusual in our society. There are those who pride themselves on how many children they've had with different women, right? You've seen this. Professional athletes tend to be prolific at this. Not always, of course, but some of them there's a famous boxer known for having named every one of his children the same first name. And the joke has always been, if you want to tell them apart, you call them by their last name. And uh, he thinks it's funny, or at least he used to. True religion, true Christianity, true faith, true faithfulness shows itself in a commitment to children. This is why Mark Montgomery stood up here a few moments ago and talked to you about our renovation. By the way, I am thrilled, I am elated with your commitment to this renovation. And every week, that number of people that give to our renovation is somewhere between 13 and 20. Now, that's very significant. 
that in a church our size, that that many people on a regular basis, think of it, if people are giving every other week, then that means that there are some 30 people at least giving on a regular basis to our renovation. And every now and then a big money dump comes in, and it's just a huge shot in the arm. It's exciting. We reprinted the poster board out there to show you the progress. You occasionally get a video or a picture that shows you a little bit about what's going on. Our commitment to this ministry that we're calling Sons and Daughters, with a sort of a sub-ministry that we're calling In the Image of God, is committed to ministering to children. And this is the heart of God. It's the heart of God. Psalm 68 verse 4 says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. You might not recognize the names Malon and Hilion from the Bible, but there is a woman who couldn't forget them. She was their mother, and she invested in them. Her name was Naomi. Investing in her sons, not simply because they were her sons, but because she desired for them to honor the Lord, meant that one day when she would lose her husband, and then one day when she would lose both of her sons, both of whom had been married, that as she endeavored to invest in them, she would ultimately invest in her daughters-in-law. Ruth and Naomi investing ultimately in each other would mean that as they did, that relationship would find its way into the eternal annals of our faith. Gauss, for you, for those of you who might have questions about what your role is in the church. It's important that you would, you would ask the right questions and that you would seek from godly women and men what it looks like to be a faithful minister within the body of Christ, a, a faithful woman, a faithful Christian, a person whom the Lord would use. And you, you might think, well, you know, I, um, I've wasted a lot of time I'm not sure that the ground can be made up. And I could tell you story after story where the Lord has restored the years that the locusts have eaten. I'll never forget a gal saying to me uh, many years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago, Todd, why didn't, I just don't understand why the Lord didn't bring solid biblical reformed teaching to my life before I got to be in my 70s. And I said, I don't know, except that God is sovereign and I know that in his kindness to you, he can take whatever mistakes you've made in the past and use them to show now in your life, faithfully devoted to sound biblical teaching, what the contrast is. Does that make sense? In other words, all those years of wayward, bad teaching that never led to any kind of appreciable spiritual growth that anyone could make note of, and here you are humbling yourself before a young man receiving my teaching, you having lived in the faith much longer than I. Praise God for your example and think of what the Lord might do if you continue to show yourself faithful to 
sound biblical truth, not just because of what he's doing now, but because of how completely different your life will show itself to be. And many of you would attest to that. You came out of weak, watered-down teaching that never really led to any kind of notable spiritual growth at all. And you, you became weary. You became desperately weary of hearing the same thing week after week after week. Some of you began to note the distinction between expository preaching and whatever else was going on under the name of expository preaching when it really wasn't at all. More began to do a real work in you. and You might look back and say, oh, all the wasted years. Don't think of it that way. Don't think of it that way. Rather, think of it as the contrast that as the Lord does a legitimate, spirit-filled work in you now that enables you to live a life that's worthy of emulation, that people who want to be godly people want to be around you. They want to follow you. They want to be like you because they know that you love Christ. They know that Jesus is truly at the heart of your heart, that you love him that you want to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so those who want to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength want to be around you. They want you to influence them. That's what they want. You can look back on your life and you could say, lots of wasted years, or you could say, praise God for the contrast because people notice the difference. Of course, you might be asking, well, what if I don't have children? And as far as I know, I never will. Then I would say, begin the adoption process right away. And I mean that. For some of you, that might mean literal adoption of an infant or a young child. But for all of you, that means taking women under your wing. It might mean just one. But that one will result truly in an eternal difference. And like Brad Graber pointed out to us last week so well, God isn't necessarily interested in you being concerned about the outcome, but you being concerned with your efforts. God blesses the Spirit-filled efforts. That's what he blesses. Let him deal with the outcome because if you truly believe that God is sovereign, you know that you don't determine the outcome. It's a man-centered theology that says, I determine the outcome. But when you trust the God of the Bible, you trust what he has commanded you to do to be right. And you honor him in your heart and in your speech and in your conduct and in your willingness to be useful and influential in the lives of others to do the same thing. And you trust him in his timing and in the venue in which he has placed you, that he's blessed you with the ability to exercise influence, spirit-filled, gospel-saturated influence. Trust him for that. Be useful, be faithful where you are rather than being disgruntled or discontent with where you are. You might say, I don't have children. You, you need to. You need to have spiritual children. No faithful Christian ever went to the grave without having influenced someone in a significant way. And some people immediately are going to go, 
The thief on the cross, he didn't influence anybody. Are you kidding? You didn't hear his evangelism of the other robber on the cross? You don't think that that robber was more accountable as a result of the one robber's influence? That he displayed God's glory and his willingness to challenge him? But that's the extreme example that some people will go to rather than saying, look at the influence throughout the Scripture. Have you read the book of 1 John? You see discipleship all the way through. You see John wanting so much for what he refers to as his little children, these spiritual infants, to become young men and then to become older men. Those are the three categories by which he refers to people in his letter. Little children, young men, and older men. Those older men are the ones who have matured to the point that their investments in little children lead to them becoming younger men and ultimately becoming older men. I'm going to ask a series of questions. That's really what this is this morning. Second question, what if I'm a man? What if I'm a man on Mother's Day? Let's just deal with this from the beginning. In the lives of women, at least one woman, whether it's your mother or your daughter or your wife or perhaps someone else that the Lord's blessed you to have influence on, should lead to you being that much more informed this morning from God's word about how she should be faithful to him. Do you really think that in your lifetime you will never, ever, ever have a conversation with a woman who's interested in knowing what God's word says about how she can be faithful to Christ? See, that ought to put you back on your heels if you've been thinking, well, I I don't need to know anything about what the Bible says about women. No, you actually do. In fact... I would say, as a man, you are more accountable to know about what God's Word says about women than any woman is accountable to know, because God calls men to lead. Do you have a daughter, a wife? Do you desire to have a wife? Do you have a son? If you do, he needs the godly influence of a multitude of women. And I would hope that if you have sons or grandsons in our children's ministry, that you would want to know who's investing in them. You'd want to know that these are godly women and godly men who are investing in our children. You, of course, need to learn to live with your wife in an understanding way. And as we frequently point out, Peter is not saying there in 1 Peter 3 that that means you need to fully understand your wife. It means that you need to be understanding. Third question I have is, what if my husband does not cooperate? You might be thinking that. What if my husband doesn't cooperate? And far worse, what if my husband pretends to cooperate? But he doesn't really cooperate. 1 Corinthians 7. And you know 1 Corinthians 7 answers so many questions about how people in the faith are to function in a way that honors the Lord in the midst of great marital difficulty. Paul says in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever 
and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there is so much here, but I suspect that what might happen in your mind the minute you hear someone start reading from 1 Corinthians 7 is you might start thinking, I've heard this before, and it didn't work. And that displays a greater devotion to pragmatism than to sound theology. And the Bible is not your operating manual to which you turn to say, how do I fix my husband this week? greater question is, how do I live with a man who is disobedient to the word? And Peter, in 1 Peter 3, says, win him over without a word. And again, I, gals, I, I know for some of you, you could, you could easily be thinking, you know, Todd, I, I tried that. I tried that for years. I remember one gal telling me years ago, you know, I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would either restore my husband or kill him. And, you know, he seemed to restore him because he came back, and then she just started praying that God would kill him. <laughs> um, this, was a, this was a poor gal who was in a bad spot. Let's just put it that way. Very, very difficult circumstance. But I think sometimes there's the belief that in an effort to be faithfully involved in the body of Christ, um, that um, your role is simply to be a doormat and to just stand down and never respond. And that's, that's not at all true. That's not at all true. You know, many women need the help of the body of Christ. And without mentioning any names, I could mention a lot of names of women and men who have faithfully subjected themselves as, as given as the blessing in 1 Peter 5 to humble yourselves before the elders, submit to the elders. And that doesn't mean that you run around asking the elders every little detail about how you're supposed to live your life. What it means is that you submit you, you, you avail yourself of their ministry to you, their willingness to lay down their lives for you, to counsel you and to help you. And, and even now we see the Lord doing a restorative work in marriages that looked like there was an absolute, complete impossibility of any kind, of any good going on at all. Most of you would say, yeah, it's my marriage. <laughs> at least at some point in the past, you would say things were really bad. Many of you would say that. You, know, you need to know, some of you, that the Lord has done a great restorative work in marriages in our church. He still does that. He's still doing that. He does that with great grace. You might not be called to the same role that you were in the past, but for sure, when he calls a person to faithfulness, he enables them to be faithful, and he enables them therefore and thereafter to be involved in people's lives effectively. 
in a way that has an eternal impact. Think of what the Lord would do. Think of this. Think of what the Lord would do in your life, in your marriage, if God restored your marriage. Think of what he would do in the lives of your children. And if that's a thing of the past, if you've remarried since your first marriage, and the Lord displays in you what legitimate biblical Christianity looks like, think of what that then could do to do a work in the lives of your children. But wherever you are is where you need to be. That's the right way to think about it. Wherever you are is exactly where you need to be. Do not divorce your spouse. Do not separate from your spouse. Now, obviously, there are extenuating circumstances where we would say, definitely, for the sake of your safety, for the sake of your children's safety, take some time and let us help you. As a church, let us be men in your life who will assist you and help you and will come alongside you and who will come alongside your husband. Certainly there are extenuating circumstances, but Paul's command is for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your spouse's salvation, and for the sake of your holy children, remain faithful. But as I said earlier, so much of the world's mindset has crept into the church such that people think that somehow their expectations in marriage are the central issue. And they will say things like, this is not what I thought I was getting into when I married you. You've changed. This is not what I expected. This is not what you and I agreed our marriage would be. So the result is that because my expectations were what they were and you haven't met them, then I am liberated to move on. And in the case of many Christians who would say, well, yeah, divorce isn't an option, but complaining sure is. There's never any evangelistic effectiveness in that marriage because the one who thinks himself or herself to be righteous is actually not while they maintain that they've gotten a raw deal. Again, Paul says here, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Gals and men, but gals, especially today, this should be massive encouragement for you, especially for those of you who have seen your children come to know Christ despite your husband's wickedness. That's the whole point. Your husband's waywardness cannot prevent the holiness, the salvation of your children. It can't. In fact, many times quite the opposite is true because children will see the contrast. They will see that one parent actually walks with the Lord and the other pretends to walk with the Lord. So what will they ultimately do? If they're interested in Christ, they will follow the one who actually follows the Lord. Question number four. What does God tell me to do? And this is really the heart of our time together this morning. What does the Lord tell me to do? You know, there's so much discussion these days about what is God's will for my life. I had a guy uh, who I respected when we were considering planting the Anchor Bible Church. I thought he would help me. And so I went to him and sought his counsel, and he said to me, well, Todd, you just need to do whatever God's telling you to do. And I said, well, 
God has told me to seek wisdom from godly men, so that's what I'm doing. I know what I want to do, but God didn't tell me to plant a church. He doesn't do that. God doesn't speak that way. God has spoken, so I'm seeking wisdom. And about 10 seconds into that effort, I thought, why am I even here talking to this guy? What does God tell me to do? Well, in 2013, we gave a message on Titus 2, 3 through 5. And if you haven't listened to that, I, I urge you, gals, that's it. That's it. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Paul calls Titus to teach women to teach women to function well in the home, to manage their homes, to raise their children. That's it. There, there's some qualifiers in there, but the issue is Paul calls Titus to teach women to teach women to serve their husbands well and to raise their children well. That's the role of every woman in the church. I didn't say that the role of every woman in the church is to serve their husbands well and to raise their children well. I didn't say that because that's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that women are to teach women to do that. You say, well, I don't have children, and I've never been married. How am I supposed to do that? Because God commands you to do it. That's how. Are there not things that you know from God's word that a woman who is married and has children needs to know? Of course there are. You say, well, my, uh, my, my life has been a tragedy. It's been filled with failure. Same command. Same command. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. That's a starting place. For some people, wine or alcohol is an idol that prevents them from having any kind of credibility or effectiveness in ministry. They are to teach what is good. That's pretty simple. Teach what is good. Teach that which is right before the Lord, that which comes from the Lord. You can do that. You can do that, no matter who you are. He says further, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That's the issue. That's the issue, that the word of God may not be shamed, insulted, reviled. It's always a, a, a dangerous thing to start naming names, so I won't. But if you ask me to, I wouldn't have enough time to explain to you, to give you the names and explain to you how many women there are in our church who are faithful to this. We are a church with strong, godly women. I said that back in 2013 when I preached that message. We're a church that's saturated with women who love Christ, love the church, they love discipleship, they invest in women, invest in children, and they do so by teaching women what is good. It could be your daughters. You could be investing in your sons today in such a way that one day your ministry to them will be an investment in their husbands. 
the right thing to do is really assess your life by this. And rather than having a pity party, oh, I never did this. Don't do that. Be honest. If there's shame involved, embrace the shame. If there's guilt, embrace the guilt. And move forward with a passion for being faithful. And stop blaming your current disobedience on your past disobedience. Because it has no hold on you. It has no hold on you. Be faithful to what God has told you to do. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. See, this is very common. Plenty of men in the church have said, well, look at my wife's life. Clearly, this whole Christianity thing is just a wash. And so he reviles the word of God. Why? Because his wife has not taught women what is good. That's why. That's exactly why. So what do you do with that? Well, as I said, don't wallow in self-pity. Be faithful to the command. Get started. Get started. Go to the leadership in your family group. Go to a woman who's faithfully and effectively discipling women and say, help me. Help me get started. Examine my life. Help me understand what there is about my life that I need to shore up so that I can have an eternal investment in women and in children. Interesting, isn't it? He, he mashes this all together, Paul does, with Titus. In verse 6, he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He's back to talking to Titus here. Show yourself to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. This is why we don't apologize for speaking the truth about the character of God. Because it's a matter of dignity. It's a matter of integrity. Verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is why a man must be above reproach. But the same call is placed on women to be above reproach, that no one would shame the church, no one would shame Christ, the head of the church, because of one individual's faithlessness. Bond servants, verse 9, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He gets back to the matter of the Word of God. Doctrine that boils up and out of the Word of God and manifests itself in lives that are faithfully devoted to holiness, to purity, to ministry, to discipleship. You know, ladies, do this. Invest in women. Teach women what is good. Teach them to be workers in the home. Teach them to love their husbands and to love their children. Why? So that the word of God will not be reviled by the onlookers. And if you've been disobedient to this, then be obedient today. Start today. Proverbs 31 is helpful. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We've done a couple of messages on that. By the way, the last three years, I think, we have not done messages related to Mother's Day. We just kind of slugged through the, the Gospel of John. 
But those are on our website as well. But I want to read to you briefly from Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, if you're wondering, what do I do? What do I do? An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Do your husband good. Uh, there was a Q&A at the Shepherds Conference, actually the day before the Shepherds Conference, and someone had asked John MacArthur about his relationship with his wife. and It was a very practical question. The guy said, I think I kind of know what the Bible says about marriage and about treatment of our wives, um, but what practical advice do you have as a man who's been in the ministry for 50 years, who's been married for all that time and more? What advice do you have for us? And he said, do what your wife tells you to do. I thought, that's genius. I mean, why not? And then he got really specific. And he said, you know that bird thing in the backyard with the red stuff in it? Keep it full. Now, obviously, that's something Patricia likes. So he keeps it full. I mean, it's that simple, guys. Ladies, same. Do what your husband wants. I mean, obviously, you know, as a pastor, I'm not going to stand here and tell you to do something that's unreasonable. So just cease with any efforts to say, well, but my husband wants me to do this and it's not reasonable. Draw a line between what's reasonable and what's not. If it's reasonable, just do it. If it takes energy, if it takes effort, just do it. Don't shame your husband. Don't mock him. Don't ridicule him. Don't let him be the prize of your jokes. Honor him if you have a husband. If you don't have a husband, honor the man who will be your husband by how you live your life now. If you don't have a husband, then honor the Lord by how you invest in women, teaching them to do what is good, teaching them to love their husbands and to love their children. But here in 2 Timothy 1, Paul gets very specific about how this works itself out over time. And he loves Timothy, you know this. You know how much he loves Titus, and he loves Epaphroditus, and he loves Timothy, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. Is he his biological child? No, but he loves him like a son. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This is a, the kind of relationship that a man ought to have with men. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And you could say, well, you know, that was a familial thing. That's, you know, Lois pouring into Eunice and Eunice pouring into Timothy and both of them pouring into Timothy together. But what it is is discipleship from an early age while they're still children. 
while there's the opportunity to invest. The point is that while he was young, that investment was made in such a way that it had a lasting impact, such that God blessed Timothy to be discipled by the Apostle Paul. I was listening to uh, Chris Mueller on a podcast yesterday, and Chris talked about how in the early days of his ministry life, someone was asking him, well, how did that all come about? And he said, hey, I, I don't know. God just blessed me with being in a great church in the first 10 years of my life in Christ, I was John MacArthur's assistant. <laughs> 10 years. I mean, that's an indelible mark on a guy who is therefore faithful in ministry because of him being poured into by another man. And there were women who invested in Chris when he was young. Lots of women, not just his mother, but other women in the church. So what do you do? Do what Lois did. Do what Eunice did, whether it's your son or your grandchildren or not. Start the adoption process right away. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, Paul can say that to Timothy because of how Lois invested in him long ago. Verse 14 of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this passage that we around here love so much, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, Lois didn't do that. Eunice didn't do that simply because Timothy was family. They did that because that's what's right. To invest in children. And ladies, for every one of you to invest in women so that they would be workers in the home. So that they would submit and love their husbands and that they would love their children. So that they might become men of God. Capable and qualified to shepherd the flock of God. I got a little bit of a story myself in that way. My parents didn't know the Lord. My dad died when I was young. My mom, I think, kind of did what she could. She struggled along. When I moved to Cleveland, Texas from Houston for a short time, uh, a church asked me to come and do some things for them for about three months before I came out here to go to seminary. They knew I was coming to seminary. And they offered for me to live in the parsonage, you know, this 2,000-square-foot house and me. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. But my, my friend's mom um, and her other son, not, not my close friend, but her other son, lived together in a very small house. And she said, why don't you just live with us for a while? It's three months. I said, yeah, why don't I do that? She invested in me. And then when I got to seminary, there was a gal named Betty Hastings. 
Elizabeth Hastings. She was a nurse. She'd never had children. I was the third student. There was a student at the Master's College that lived with her for two or three years. And then there was a seminary student that lived with her for three years. And then I lived with her for three years. And every morning, I would hear Betty in the bathroom singing. Betty was tone deaf. And every morning she would sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to you. And it was, tone deaf and all, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. I love Betty Hastings. She was a widow who had been faithful to Christ. And in as I look back on my life, one of the more tragic experiences, I was standing there at the sink, staring out the kitchen window, weeping, and Betty came up behind me, all of probably 100 pounds, 89 years old, and she put her hands on my shoulder, and she said, it's going to be okay. And it wasn't just those words. It was a life invested in the church, invested in Christ, invested in other students, invested in my life, hearing her. The last six months that I lived with Betty, she went from the early stages of Alzheimer's down to the latter stages, and she was completely incapable of doing anything for herself. I failed a class in seminary as a result of staying up all night many times, caring for her, working a full-time job, being a full-time student in seminary. I wrote a letter to the seminary, and uh, with much grace, they allowed me to do that work later. The semester ended in December, and they let me turn it in in February. I ended up with an A-, minus, so you know. And uh, it's a lot of work to be crammed into one short period of time, but I felt like it was the right thing to invest in Betty in the latter days of her life. And that was, in a sense, easy. It was very hard in, in many ways, but it was, in a sense, easy in terms of motivation. I had no problem saying, i, I got to take care of Betty. And in time, uh, a nephew came along, uh, received some inheritance from her, and then he was able to put her in a place where they uh, were supposed to be caring for her till the end of her life. Uh, and then um, someone, and I don't remember who, asked me to do her funeral. What an honor to stand before a few hundred people and to just speak of the integrity with which Betty Hastings lived her life. You know, some would say, well, you know, you're not really talking about investing in children or investing in women. I'm talking about a woman who invested her life in people, and I happened to come along at the right time. And there's a strong sense in which if I wasn't a spiritual reprobate at the time, I was nothing more than a spiritual child. And Betty saw fit to pour herself into me. And I think maybe as much as anyone, because of her faithfulness to Christ and her willingness to, to pray for me, the Lord used her to influence my life in a way that today influences you. It might be where some of you are, finding yourself with an opportunity to minister in some seemingly unorthodox way, maybe not a way that you would have scripted, but God has a design for your life. 
that you would be faithful to minister to women, minister to children. The fifth question I have for you is, what if I want to lead men? Well, start when they're young, right? Start when they were Timothy's age. But if you want to lead grown men, I, I, would, I would ask you to consider how that went for Eve. That didn't go well. Now, when I got my first real job in Houston, Texas, I was a systems analyst for an engineering company. The uh, first person I worked for was a man, no problem. And then they hired a woman to manage our department. And I knew enough about the Bible to know that I need to submit to my employer. And so that became a non-problem. In the workplace, there's nothing wrong with being led by women, but in the context of the church, Paul is very clear. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. You say, well, braided hair, is that a problem? This was a cultural no-no in that era. And so when it comes to things like this that culturally speaking are not acceptable, then we need to be sensitive to that. Paul drew lines with some specifics here, but the point was not precisely what you wear or don't wear, but the, what you wear is not displayed ostentatiously as being costly. A lot of famous people love to wear clothing that literally costs thousands of dollars. That's a little bizarre to me, but they can do that, and they want to do that. They want to be known for their $3,800 jumpsuit that looks like they bought it at Walmart. That's what they want to be known for. You could have just bought it at Walmart or something that looks better. So the point is that there is a submissive spirit. There's a commitment to modesty. And then he says this after focusing on good works. By the way, men, when your wife is committed to good works, be it for you or others, you, you should rejoice. You should rejoice. Paul then says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this is not pragmatism. It says, well, look how it worked out just because, you know, uh, a woman was put in charge or a woman tried to take charge. Look how that went. That's not the deal here. Paul is pointing out that that was never the design. That's why it went wrong. That's why it went wrong. So where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Some pastors, I know a guy who did this many years ago. He asked a woman to come and preach. You know, Beth Moore, by the way, is known for her preaching in churches. That's kind of the, the hubbub that's going on right now with many things that are being exposed about Beth Moore. She even said recently, in 40 years of ministry, I've probably only preached from a pulpit in a church 15 times, as if that makes it okay. But the point is that a woman is not to teach or exercise 
authority over a man in the context of the church. You say, well, I mean, women have spoken from the pulpit here at the Anchors. Yoli frequently, Diane Burton, my wife, a number of you have spoken. Jody did a great job last week talking about the, the ladies' event. That's not teaching, and it's not exercising authority over men. But this one man that I'm thinking of asked a woman to come and preach in his church, and his exact words were, don't get yourself in an uproar because she's teaching under my authority. My response would be, and she is teaching in rejection of God's authority. So pretty clear. So there's a caveat here. If you want to lead men, God has required that you not do that in the context of the church. So invest in them while they're little. You know, Have the lasting impact by being involved in their lives when they're young. Now, in case you're wondering, gals, what role can I have? What role should I have in the lives of men who clearly need some help? Well, Acts 18 verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a woman counseling a man. It's not a woman discipling a man. It's not a woman having an ongoing counseling interaction with a man, but it's in the moment she brings a correction and Apollos responds well. So is it right for you on occasion to give correction to a man, to provide counsel? Absolutely. I don't know what in the world I would do without Diane Burton and certainly without my wife. I glean more wisdom from my wife than you might ever imagine, and I mean regularly. She never grows tired of me asking the same question seven or eight times. But when it's a heavy issue, I'll go to her and I'll just, I'll just I'll, I don't even try to pretend that I'm asking it in a different creative way. I'll say, so what are you thinking about? And sometimes she'll say, well, exactly what I told you an hour ago. <laughs> and she's very gracious about it. She knows I'm being sincere. I need her help. I need her wisdom. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And in my home, one of the primary counselors is my wife, and I need her counsel. So this is sort of the long and short of it. The Scripture says much about this, but we've kind of covered it in terms of, you know, gals, what your life should be boiled down to. You've got kids. Invest in them. You don't have kids. Invest in kids. And especially invest in women. So question number six. How does this work? What should this look like? What exactly... Do I do? I've got a list of six things, and you know me, I'll probably come up with more by the time we get to number six. Number one, pray. I hope you pray. I know you do, but I hope that you pray strategically, deliberately, on some sort of schedule. Plead with God to give you wisdom as to where best to invest your time and efforts. Number two, 
drink, and I mean drink deeply from God's word. Be a person whose life is worthy of emulation such that you are desperate for the person of God as proven by your willingness to be in the word, sitting under sound teaching, embracing it, being a doer, not only a hearer, regularly being scathed and then strengthened by the Word of God. There are many ways in which you can do that, but let me assure you that the primary way is for you to be taught by your church. Yes, you should read your Bible. Of course you should read your Bible. You should read it voraciously, passionately. Do you read other things before you read the Bible? Even if it's good theology? I had a friend confess that to me years ago. He was really struggling with leading his family and a lot of other things. And as we began to probe and gently ask questions about what might be throwing him off his game, so to speak, began to ask questions about the intake in his life. And he loved sound theology. But let me tell you what most certainly will happen and what most certainly did happen. He began to embrace liberal theology because he was willing to read just about anybody. And the Bible itself was not a mainstay. He had developed zero interest in being nourished by the true, pure Word of God. And he embraced an aberrant theology. By God's grace, the Lord brought him back. But it was not without a lot of work and a lot of sweat and blood. Three, invest. This is discipleship. I mean invest. I mean pour your life into somebody or somebody's. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be hours and hours and hours of time. For some of you, it is. For some of you, you have more time to do that. For some of you, you have less time. But let me uh, run with this idea of investing a little bit here. You, you want to have your pen, I think. Invest with your calendar. Schedule the time. Carve out time. You don't need to pour the same amount of time into some gal that some other gal you know is doing. It might look like that eventually, but start with something, some sliver of your schedule that becomes a high priority. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're really going to do this. So invest. Along with that, consider doing some work on our renovation. Right, Emily? <laughs> right, Sherry? We're Sherry Berkebile. You've seen pictures of Sherry Berkebile with a big hole in the drywall and a hammer in Sherry's hand. You know, consider that. Consider bringing your children. You might want them to see you involved in preparing the place where we're going to be ministering to our kids. At the very least, be praying for our renovation. Think about how the Lord might use you to give for our renovation. Consider being a helper, not necessarily a teacher, but a helper in our children's ministry. We need helpers. You can do that, right? Two out of every six weeks, maybe now's not the right timing for you to do that, but maybe it is. Consider that. Consider helping in 412 on Wednesday nights. How about helping a busy mother? You know, somebody who's really under it. Or how, how about helping a new mother who's starting to get under it? You know? You remember that, your first baby, and you're going, what in the world am I supposed to do with this thing? You could probably be helpful to her. 
How about that young woman whose husband's committed adultery? There's a worthy investment. A woman whose life is shattered. And she's willing, and you're willing. You know, that could take a lot of time, but I guarantee it'd be worth every minute. We've seen the Lord do truly supernatural works in people's lives when there's a team, you know, of gals investing in one woman. You start the morning by sending a scripture. You know, you do the counseling twice a week and you pray fervently. You'd be the one who's praying, you know, for 20 minutes a day about this situation. We've seen the Lord do works like that. We've seen the Lord do a restorative work. It, it's not an absence of work. It involves work. When the Lord does a work, he uses the work of faithful people. What about that newlywed who's starting to realize marriage is not what she thought it was going to be? That's never happened to anybody, right? Be intentional. Be strategic. Be deliberate. Not casual. That never helps. Might help for a moment, but casual never helps long term. Just not productive. Have a plan. If somebody's not willing to stick to the plan, remind them they need to be on the plan. Number four, under how does this work? Counsel. Be deliberate. Be willing to say things that are true that this person you're investing in needs to hear. Counsel from the Word of God. Paul tells us. In Romans 15, we are all counselors. We're all full of goodness, able, equipped to admonish one another. Five, give resources. Here you go. Here's a classic. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. You want to disciple somebody? That's where I would start. Spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, fasting, just basics, service. Follow-up book to that called Habits of Grace. Many of you have been through that book. It's a great tool. You want to disciple somebody. Here's one called Uprooting Anger. You don't know anybody that deals with anger, do you? How about how to approach it biblically? Here's a little book. I don't know how many times I've read this book. But every time I read it, it's helpful. It's a tiny little book. You can get through it in about 20 minutes, even if you're a slow reader, and it's called Found God's Will. That's a great discipleship tool, helping somebody understand the simple reality that doing God's will is not a mystery. Here's one, truth about Adventist truth. You know, Maybe you know somebody who needs to know more about Adventism. There are good books on Jehovah's Witness, on Roman Catholicism. Here's one called Improving Your Quiet Time. Here's one of the most powerful books I've ever read, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. Some of you need this truth so much because you're holding on to stuff, right? Maybe you need this, and it will be helpful for you to take somebody through it. Finally Free by Heath Lambert. It's really a book on sanctification that happens to deal with pornography. But gals, there's a section in here for you if your husband is committed to pornography. How to handle that. Uh, Anxious for nothing. This book's pretty tattered. I've been through it a few times. 
anxious to read it again. <laughs> Do More Better by Tim Challies. You know how to get your life in order. This is fabulous. This thing right here called Listen Up. A practical guide to listening to sermons. Some people think they know how to listen to expository preaching, and they don't. Some people think they've sat under expository preaching, and then they sit under it, and they're in a whirlwind. This is a wonderful little tool. It wouldn't take you long to get through it and be a great way to help somebody. Here's a book that Dominic keeps referring to uh, in our meetings, The Trellis and the Vine. Trellis and the Vine speaks of the reality that the church needs structure. That's the trellis. The vine represents the growth of the church. We're a church that's grown a lot in numerous ways in the last almost eight years. There must be structure, but the structure must not take precedence over the growth. We've had a lot of growth. We need to have structure in our church. And as a church administrator, Dominic is doing well to read that book. I could give you a significantly longer list of great books, but you, if you're wondering, what do I do? Where do I start? There's some places to start. Here's another thought. Just read the Bible. Just sit down and read through the book of James. Do a half a chapter every time you meet. Have a cup of coffee. Read through a half a chapter of the book of James. Pretty soon you'll be done with that and you'll want to go on to something else. The sixth response to what do I do, how does this work itself out, is teach. And I mean in a structured way. I mean maybe in our children's ministry. You know, maybe it's time for you to start considering that. Or in wow. You know, some of you have found your way into teaching because in a small group, this is how it works in Ironman. And over the years, as a man displays the ability to articulate sound truth, I'm listening to that. I'm thinking, ooh, he, we might need to put him in front of some other people. That's how it happened with Nicholas. I can remember sitting, I'll never forget it. We were in the pops room before it was the pops room. And um, listening to Nicholas explain some doctrine, and I thought that was like R.C. Sproul level clear. That was so clear and so helpful. And I began to think, that's a guy who needs to be teaching. And so he teaches our children on Wednesday nights. And I'm sure there will be many other opportunities over the years. But that's how it's happened with many of you gals in the same way. In a small group, you articulate truth in a way that's clear and powerful and it's heartfelt and someone's listening and saying, wow, her life is really, really changing. And someone might say, that's, that's how it works. We need, to, we need to capitalize on that. In this moment, you might be saying, you know, I am so completely far away from anything and everything you've said this morning. And so you need discipleship. You need at least one person to really invest in you. So I want to finish with this from Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. We'll go through the whole story. We'll do that another day. But Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer 
and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And as you know, David is the father of Jesus, ultimately. The lineage of this faithful woman results in the birth of our Savior. And how did that come about? Well, look with me in your bulletin, page 4. And it says, next Sunday's memory verse. This is how it happened. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. This is the tenacious willingness of a woman who said, my parents aren't going to cut it, but my mother-in-law serves the one true God, and so I will glue myself to her, and I may never leave her, but by gluing myself to her, I will learn to faithfully serve her God. Ladies, that's how it works. Whatever the tragedy, whether it's self-inflicted or not, I'm legitimately and sincerely saying, I know many of you have experienced immense difficulty. Whatever it is, trust the Lord to restore the years that the locusts have eaten and be faithful to attach yourself to at least one legitimately faithful godly woman. And as you do that, he will use you to invest eternally in women and children, and who knows what might come of it. You might next see the the world's greatest evangelist come from that lineage. Or you might simply see a man who pastors a small church as he's faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, God blesses the efforts. Amen. Father, we rejoice in you, God, our Savior. We pray that you would bring great strength, encouragement through the beautiful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every woman in this room, as well as those who are not here with us today. Pray, Lord, that you in your kindness, as you've shown to so many of us who this day can look back on our lives and say, Father, thank you for the women who poured into me. May we be willing to be a church that's faithful to invest in women who would invest in women and children for your eternal glory and for our eternal good. Amen.